I ask you to take your Bibles with me this evening and turn back to the passage that we read a few moments ago in Hebrews chapter 10. And I would direct your attention to Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 22. We'll be taking these words as our text and considering them together with the Lord's help. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 22. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It may, may, may not be immediately evident to you, but as we come to these words in, our, in the book of Hebrews, we're actually coming to a hinge in the book of Hebrews. This is the dividing line, if you will, uh, for the book of Hebrews, the, the first part prior to this text, is predominantly focused on doctrine. And beginning here in these words and what follows, we have the application of that doctrine primarily in the remainder of the epistle. And this follows a pattern that you're familiar with. In the book of Romans, you have the first 11 chapters where gospel doctrine is laid out, chapters 12 and following the application of it. Hebrews divides similarly, chapters 1 to 3 with the doctrine, chapters 4, 5, and 6 with application. So it's something similar uh, to that. So we have a turning point, if you will. The the doctrine which has been set forth in the book of Hebrews is the supremacy and the superiority of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is set forth in absolutely glorious ways. We see that He is truly incomparable that there is none like unto Him. There is none that can stand with Him. There is no competitor not to be likened unto Him. And so in Hebrews, you have a whole list of comparisons, right? He is higher and superior to all of the angels. He is superior to Moses, the great prophet of the Old Testament, to Joshua, the one who came in conquest, to Aaron, who is the high priest of the Old Testament. He's superior to to all of these, to to the angelic hosts themselves. And then it continues to go on and it speaks about how his priesthood is greater than any other, how his sacrifice is greater than any other, how his tabernacle and dwelling is greater than any other. And clearly and repeatedly we have reinforced within our thoughts and affections the superiority, the supremacy of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then we come to the application of this doctrine. And in some, it is a call to faith. So the book of Hebrews, in this latter section especially, there's underlining it this theme of perseverance and of faith or of persevering faith in the object of faith, the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so we come here in chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, to the beginning, if you will, of this section. And you'll notice in, in what we read earlier, there are really uh, three successive exhortations that are brought. The first is, let us draw near with full assurance of faith verse 20, in verse 22. 
Then there is, secondly, let us hold fast the profession of faith and hope, verse 23. And then thirdly, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works in verse 24. Interesting, isn't it? You have right back to back, faith, hope, love, all woven together within those, the, the brief compass of those words. But here we're focused on verses 19 and 22. The title of our sermon is an open entrance. Here is the description of uh, an open entrance that is given to us, set before us, and the exhortation, therefore, let us draw near. So we're going to note three things with the Lord's help uh, this evening. First of all, the capability to draw near. First of all, the capability to draw near. Look with me at verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, we know that the natural man left to himself actually has bolted door in front of him when it comes to the presence of God. That indeed, natural man draws away from the Lord, right? The, the, the inclination is to say, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And we know that if we fast forward and cast our gaze to the end of time, that there at the culmination of all at the judgment seat, indeed, the words of those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ will be, depart from me, right, into everlasting judgment. And so, natural man in his native condition is placed in a position of what would appear to be restricted access in himself, in his own terms, and in his own abilities. There is a restricted access, and there's in fact reference to this sort of thing in what is found previously in chapter 9, where we find there, for example, in verses 6 to 10, where he's, he's describing the high priest's and what happened with them, they would go into the first tabernacle and it's describing uh, for us the fact that you had an outer court and there was the brazen altar upon which the burnt offering was, was offered and there's the place where they bathed, the priests bathed themselves. But then you had the tent itself divided into two compartments, the larger one and the smaller one. And they would go into the first tabernacle, referring to the first part, the first room, if you will, in that tabernacle, included the showbread and the candles and the, uh, the golden uh, altar of incense, and then, of course, inside the inner chamber is the holiest, uh, the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, where you had the ark and all that is with it. And so it's describing how the priests entered into the first uh, tabernacle, but only the high priest and he alone, one man on one day, once a year, and only with blood was able to enter into the holiest place, into the holy of holies. And so there was a sense of uh, restriction in terms of their, their access uh, to the immediate presence of God. The picture, right, this Hebrews tells us is a microcosm. It is a, it is a, a, a symbol of heaven. It's given to us as a pattern of heaven itself. And so there's restricted access and being able to enter. And isn't it interesting, because the, the priests faced this on a daily basis. They had the sacrifices and so on, and their regular service that they went about. They would go into the, into the first uh, compartment of the, the tabernacle itself. The showbread was changed once a week on the Sabbath. They had to tend to the oil of the lamps and so on and so forth. 
But amidst everything else, the offering of incense on the, the golden altar, what else did they see there? Children, do you remember? When they're inside, of course, the room's illuminated by the lampstand. What else is it that they would see? Well, on the west end of that room, as the Lord appointed it, there were four golden pillars and solid golden hooks from which hung a veil, a veil separating the first compartment from the holy of holies. Heavy, thick curtain, fine twined linen, blue, scarlet, purple, with embroidered cherubims on it. And of course, the light shining upon this, illuminating it. And here they would face a daily reminder. No access. You're cut off. You're not allowed to go in, as it were, to what is the symbol of the immediate presence of the Lord. No access into His presence. The way is closed off. There is a barrier. And there's a great deal of of symbolism and theological content within all that the Lord has designed in that, those Old Testament ceremonial institutions. But I want to point out one that you may have passed over, and that is how the tabernacle is situated. I said that the Holy of Holies is on the west end, and what's interesting is that all of the movement, the physical movement of the priests was westward from the beginning of the day. It was westward right? They would, you would come into the outer court, and first of all, the burnt offering, the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice had to be offered. And they have, uh, they're facing uh, west, so the sun is rising behind them. And that morning sacrifice, the sun itself is, is behind their back. It's as if the sun itself is bowing uh, before the presence of God Himself. But they continued to move, and they made their way into the tabernacle itself, and they're busying themselves with the various components of their service. But that movement stops before the veil. And beyond that, immediately in front of it, of course, is the, 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 the golden altar of incense where the morning, which was offered morning and evening along with the prayers of the, of the Lord's people. And this is, this is not accidental. This is by divine by divine prescription. And you go back with me for just a second to the beginning. What do we have there in Eden? We have the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of mankind. And as a result of their sin, there is this great expulsion. The Lord drives them out of His immediate presence. He drives them out of the garden. And they are driven out of the garden eastward. And out they go, and the Lord places a cherubim at the gate, the entrance into the garden with a flaming sword that was blocking the way, preventing them from coming back. But of course, after the fall, that's not all. The Lord, right on the heels of it, reveals the first seed of gospel promise, which continues to develop and, and, and to blossom and is more and more frequent as you turn your pages of your Bible, as the Lord's revealing all of the glories of the provision that He would make in the gospel. And what's interesting is that in these ceremonial institutions, we have the direction reversed. The way back to God through redemption, ultimately through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, His cross work and saving redemption. It's signified here in this, these Old Testament shadows as westward. 
They're moving through the cross, the symbol of the cross, and through all of these other things, westward, 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 until they hit the Holy of Holies, until they hit the veil. And there on that veil are cherubim, reminiscent of the garden, barring access. And they had, they were crashing, as it were, into the wall of reality that their sins separated them from God. Only the high priest could enter, one man, one day, once a year, and not without blood. And so we come back now to to later in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, and he's saying, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Here is the glory of gospel grace. That, that believers, those who are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, actually are given that liberty of coming into the presence of God as true worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth, who are given access because they're given acceptance before God through the work of the Lord Jesus. You say, how is that? Well, as Hebrews is constantly drawing on these Old Testament pictures, there was a key to get through the veil. Children, what was the key? It wasn't a key like the one that your daddy has in his pocket to open the front door of your house. The key was blood. Blood. The shedding of blood is what gave them entrance. Underlying and underscoring and reinforcing before us even here and now the fact that no one comes to the Father but by Him but by the Lord Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through the the, the saving and sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way. It is through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 9, verse 12, neither by the blood of, of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And so here it is, the Lord coming and granting in the gospel through the work of Jesus Christ this this access. The key is the blood of, of Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And we see it from the days of Adam and Cain and Abel all the way through the Old Testament. Blood shed for sin. Fresh blood had to be shed all pointing forward to, all signifying something of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And this is where we find ourselves this evening, isn't it? We find ourselves coming in under the Word of God and God coming to us in that Word and setting forth before us the, 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 the capability to draw near, not through what we bring, but through what He Himself has brought, what He Himself has provided. What He Himself has given in the giving of His own Son and what Christ has given in in withholding nothing but giving all as a sacrifice for sin in order that His people might have access and might have acceptance before Him. And this is not just in terms of access into heaven, which it is indeed, but even here and now, access into the presence of God in our prayer, in our worship in fellowship, in communion that is to be had with Him. Notice verse 19 says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter 
into the holiest. Literally, this could be translated, having boldness for entrance. In other words, what's being described here in verse 19 is the right of entrance. In other words, it's describing something objective. It's not describing here uh, the the subjective experience or condition of the heart, but rather is describing the objective right. In other words, he's saying that those who come to God on his own terms and come by way of the gospel and come through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have a title to enter with boldness by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you think of this, right? A deed or a title. You purchase a house and they give you the deed. Your name is written on it. You have a title to it. You have the right. You can, you can drive to the house that you've purchased at the realtor's office or lawyer's office or whatever, and you don't have to sit in the driveway and wait for someone else. It's yours. You're able. You have a right to enter into that house. You can take possession of it. This is what's being described, the capability to draw near. You say, but well, there's all, the, all that the law requires. Think of all that the law requires, the terms of access, the holiness and righteousness that are required, and all of the other things that come with it. And here we're told in verse 19 that it is by the blood of Jesus that the meritorious cause that enables a soul born in sin to come into the presence, to draw near to the Lord, is by Christ's blood. Christ's blood is what procures the entrance. His atonement is what fulfills the demands that the law requires in order that a sinner who is a lawbreaker and a transgressor and iniquitous and through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ and through dependence upon His atoning sacrifice come with boldness into the holiest by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not pensive, not cautious. In this sense, that it is the merit of Jesus Christ that enables them to do so. This is the gospel way. But it's also the way in which the Christian lives all their life. The person uh, who, who is unconverted The Spirit comes and they're brought under the power of these truths and the Spirit works enabling us to lay hold of these things by faith. But it's not as if that is all and it's done and left at that point. But rather, this is describing what it means to walk with the Lord. The boldness of coming into the holiest. It's actually describing something that is perpetual, that is ongoing. To walk with the Lord, to walk before the Lord, is to be with the Lord. The Christian religion is not just about weaving together some elaborate Christian worldview, not just giving cogent, irrefutable answers to what society is asking, not just a whole list of other things, It is, in fact, communion with God. Like Mary, at the feet of the Savior, living with Him and before Him. It is finding 
the sweetness in the conscious presence of Christ Himself and taking refuge there and spending a life, as it were, in nearness to Him. John Owen said, Christ is our best friend and ere long will be our only friend. I pray God with all my heart that I may be weary of everything else but converse and communion with Him. Weary of everything else, but converse and communion with Him. So we have the capability to draw near. Secondly, we have the confidence to draw near. Look again at the text, verses 20 and 21. The confidence to draw near. By a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. What is the Lord doing here? The Lord is coming along. He's saying, this is, he, he said, this is the capability. This is the way in which men and women, boys and girls, have a capability to draw near uh, unto the Lord. But then He comes behind it with comforts. He comes behind it with incentives. He comes behind it with encouragements. He's coming with motivations. All of the, all of the obstacles and all of the objections and all the hindrances that are raised within our own hearts and minds. He's coming before those things in order to sweep them out of the way. He's saying, yes, a way is prepared to draw near. And a guide has been provided to enable you to do so. Both a way is prepared and a guide to do so. The obstacles have been removed. The path has been cleared in order that we might know Something of the highest possible, highest conceivable privilege of any man, any creature, to be found in the presence of the God of glory. Both a way and a guide. And you say, well, well, you know, what about what about this and what about that? What about all these other things? You know, what about the, the record of all of my guilt, all of the ways in which I have violated the law of God? This very Sabbath day, desecrated, as every other Sabbath has been, in my thoughts, words, and heart, if not in my, in my actions. All of the other commandments trampled underfoot. We are like Isaiah, right? The record is one of unclean lips. Our, our mouths testify against us. All of these things testify against us. So what about the defilement, the pollution, the filth that is to be found, which stains our souls, and so on? The Lord is saying that in Jesus Christ, by and through the Lord Jesus Christ, those things are removed, that He removes them in the gospel. They're gone. You think of the language of, of 1 Peter chapter 3, just not far after the book of Hebrews, there in verse 18, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. This is the heart of, of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ is the door, as He said He was. He is the gate, right? For Adam, the gate was bolted shut. He was banished. There was a flaming sword that was put in the, in the way. And here we're being told there is a new and a living way 
which the Lord hath consecrated for us. It's a new and living way that He has provided for us. Notice, for us, right? That veil that had been closed off and shut, right? Here is the the newly slain Lamb of God under the new covenant who has come in His definitive, final, perfect, comprehensive sacrifice for all of the sins of all of His people. Not with the sacrifice of dead beasts, but it is a living one, a living way. Not a lifeless Savior, but one who has resurrected life and vital power that leads indeed to everlasting life. And we're told that it's consecrated for us. It's dedicated, if you will, for us. In other words, it is fit. It's appropriate. It's suited to precisely your condition, to precisely your circumstances, to exactly where you are, who you are, where you've been. This is a new and living way fit for us and made fit astonishingly at the high cost of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the most costly thing in all the world. And so we're told that we go through the veil, the text says, through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, through His death, through Him as the sin-bearer. Through His death, access is made possible, and He has removed the curse of the law. And so what do we have in the Gospels? Christ is crucified on Golgotha, on Calvary, and at the very time in which He is being offered as the sacrifice, the final sacrifice for the sins of His people, we have the veil in the temple rent in twain, from top to bottom. From heaven, torn wide open to earth. We enter through the veil. We are able to enter through the veil, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So a way is open. But you'll notice that there's more than that. Because we also have a guide in verse 21. And having a high priest over the house of God. The way is open. But you say to yourself, alas, minister, I hear it, I see it, I know it. I would not deny it, that these gospel truths are reality, that the way of salvation is through Christ's cross, through His atoning work. That, that, is, that is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life, period. The way is open, true. But alas, I am too weak to walk through it. Too sinful to walk through it, too unworthy to walk through it, too unable, incapable to walk through it. And the Lord says, ah, yes, I've provided for this too. Because in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a high priest as well. He is both the high priest and the sacrifice. He, in fact, is the high priest offering the sacrifice and offering up himself. But he's a high priest. A high priest is the one who who was living within the veil, 
who was permitted inside the veil. But here is one, of course, greater than any of the sons of Aaron, the greatest of all, the great high priest, who indeed has passed already through the veil. He has gone into the heavens. He has gone into the inner sanctum and above and beyond the highest heavens to be enthroned as the Lord of glory and as a high priest forever for His people. This is where He intercedes and continues all of His mediation on behalf of His people. We have a high priest inside the veil, and He is the one who comes and is able to take those who are weak and faltering to take you by the hand and to bring you in, to bring you inside the veil. He is a great high priest, a great high priest over the house of God, right? He is is the one who is head of the house. He is the one who is the Lord of the house. He is the one who is the sovereign over the house. He's the one who says what happens in the house. And He is a high priest on behalf of poor, helpless, needy sinners just like you and just like me. And on our behalf, in all of His mediating intercession and priestly work, He grants ability to come through the veil, assisting us in all of our limping and all of our stumbling, at times crawling. It is Christ Himself who is willing and able to save to the uttermost. He is the great shepherd of the sheep who leaves the ninety and nine, who goes off and finds the one that is lost, and who catches and lays hold of them and brings them home, brings them to Himself. This is the kind of Savior that the Lord Jesus Christ is, one who comes not only able to save sinners, for some of you, you can go that far, but also a Savior who is willing, willing and able to save poor, helpless sinners. But then thirdly, we have then the call to draw near. Thirdly, we have the call to draw near. What comes, you can feel the momentum building in the text, right? We've been, we have boldness to enter. There's a new and living way. God's consecrated it through the veil. We've been given a high priest. All this momentum is building. And then he says, let us draw near. Let us draw near. The call to draw near. And this, this, this business of drawing near is itself a priestly act, is it not? It is, but it's not one that's done with the feet like Aaron did and others in the tabernacle and later in the, in the temple, but it is actually, it's the act of a heart. It's the act of our soul. When the Lord calls us, come unto me, we don't respond with our feet. It's drawing near with our hearts, with our souls, under the irresistible grace of the Lord coming to, to Him by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, draw near. He's calling, he's calling us to get into the secret place, under the stair, in the cleft of the rock, to ascend, as it were, into the heavens, to take into our mouths the words that we sing in the Psalms, I will go unto the altar of God unto God, my exceeding joy. 
This is not just to draw near with our lips. Now, this is as common as could possibly be, right? Isaiah warned about it. Jesus quotes it in the Gospels. There are those who will draw near to Him with their lips while their hearts are far from Him. This isn't merely lip service, saying the right thing, memorizing the right vocabulary, repeating the right words, playing the right part, adopting the right actions and customs and so on and so forth. No, no. He says, let us draw near with a true heart. It's with the heart that we draw near to Him. What does the Lord say to us? He says to us in the language of of, of Proverbs, my son, my daughter, give me thine heart. Give me thine heart. The inward man, our soul, Father is seeking those who worship Him in spirit and in truth, not just in outward form, in routines, but who are worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, not just outward performances. And so He's saying, let us draw near through all the means that Christ has undertaken to provide for us, through all of these things. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, it says, confidence, you know, we won't spend, go into this in detail, but you, you can see that it's speaking of confidence without wavering, without doubting. You say, well, who's sufficient for such a thing, for confidence, this sort of confidence? It is not confidence in yourself. It's not confidence in your own circumstances, your own condition, your history. It's not confidence in anything that is found inside of you, your record that you bring with you. It's not even confidence in your faith. The confidence is placed entirely in the merits of Jesus Christ. Confidence in who Christ is. Confidence in what Christ has accomplished. Faith is receiving Christ. Faith is resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is relying, among other things, on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, of putting the full weight of our soul, of our whole being, hanging everything for time and eternity on who He is and what He has accomplished. You know, you think of, to illustrate, you think of ivy. I have ivy growing behind my house. Right? Ivy will spread all over the place, cover the ground, go over bushes, up trees, and so on. It's limp in and of itself. You go and pick up a piece of ivy. You can hang, pull it up in the air, children. Lift it up high up above your head. Right There it is with its leaves and all. As soon as you let it go, it collapses to the ground. No ability to support itself. What does it do? It comes to the base of an oak tree, a big, big, fat oak tree, and it'll wrap around that oak tree. And it'll go up the oak tree. And there's ivy, and it's all beautiful ivy growing up and down the the oak tree. But where's the strength? Strength isn't found in the ivy itself. It's in holding on to the oak, isn't it? Faith is, is, is laying hold of Christ. He is all in all. He is everything. He must be from beginning to end everything. You say to yourself, well, minister, can't do it. It says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. 
not possible. I can't do it. I, I, I don't have a true heart. I, I'm not able with this kind of confidence to draw near. Oh, my dear friend, if you can't come with these things, then come to the throne of grace for these things. If you can't come with them, then come for them. Come on the terms of the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking the provisions that He makes for such things. Right? It speaks of, it speaks of having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, an evil conscience, right, accusing us of all of the, the guilt of sin, all of the things that we have done, all of the things that you have left undone, all of the things that are absent, all of the things that don't have the degrees of what should be necessary in your life, character, experience, and so on and so forth. And there's this evil conscience that accuses of guilt. The Lord says, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Where is the true heart coming from? It's coming through the application of the blood of Jesus Christ, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is what is able to purge the conscience, to cleanse it from all of its defilement, which delivers it from all of its torments. The conscience can be excruciating in its torment. Relief is found under the blood, the sprinkling, the application of the blood of Jesus Christ to our souls, bodies washed. You have the imagery of the priests washing themselves over and over and over again. And the Lord washing us, and the Lord calling us to this, right? He, even in the Christian life, being called on, where the Lord says that we are therefore to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That too is a work of the Holy Spirit, washed with the water of word, the water of the word, as the Apostle Paul speaks in Ephesians 5 and so on. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, this, in fact, is an ongoing experience. It is something that is constant. It is something that it's part and parcel that leads to communion and fellowship with God. Just as the priests had to, every time they had to be washing themselves as they were entering into the, the place of God's presence, the fresh application of sacrifice, blood and water, and so on and so forth. This is the life of the Christian. All day, every day, all year, all life long. It is going to Christ and going to Christ and depending upon Christ and drawing on Christ and living up out of the resources of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just times of urgent business where we are convicted of sin of which we need to repent or we're in desperate need under the vice of some acute trial and we're running as it were into the throne room in order to attain help in time of need. But this is actually referring to frequent visits, 
perpetual visits, constant visits, the Lord sprinkling us from a clean conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, living in a vital, lively communion and fellowship with Him, right? This is the nature of relationships, isn't it? Nearness, closeness. You say, I have a close friend. I'm close to this sibling. I'm, I'm near. There's a nearness to them. In fact, the opposite is hideous. In a marriage, monstrous, a cold, formal, distant love for a spouse. No. We think of nearness and closeness. And so it is with reference to the Lord, drawing near to Him continually, staying close, as it were, to the Lord, mindful of His presence, dependent upon His grace, relying on the ministry of the the Holy Spirit. And so it's true for all of us, for those of you who are unconverted here this evening, for those of you who are outside of a state of grace and not not in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word is coming to you, isn't it? The Lord is saying He's calling you to draw near on His terms. You know, you, he, He's coming and He's saying, where you find yourself this evening is in the place of perishing, right? To be cut off from God, to say no, to, to deny, to resist, to defy, to dishonor, to disregard the overtures of the gospel which the Lord Jesus Christ comes in the Word and brings to you and to say, no, I would choose the world and I would choose my own self-interest and my own appetites and my sin and so on and so forth. To say, I won't draw near. Or to say to yourself, I'm content to be close. Right, Jesus, we have, we have references to this. Those who were near to the kingdom, but not in the kingdom. Who are content to look on from a distance, as it were. This is to rebuff. This is to resist. This is to, to, to push away, to go away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact is that left in such a state, every single soul who finds them, who dies in such a condition, has their wishes confirmed. When Jesus on the last day says, depart from me, you're cursed into everlasting torments. Well, here we are with the gospel door, the door of mercy open this evening. Christ Himself coming in and among us by His Spirit through His Word. And He's saying to you, my unconverted friend, draw near, come, come unto me. Come on the basis of all that Christ is, all that Christ has accomplished. And for the believer too, The believer is called fresh, this act of heart, to be walking with the Lord, invisible to the eyes of men, right? There you are, you're you're walking somewhere, you're talking to someone, you're in the car, but you're, you're with the Lord. Your heart's with Him, your mind's with Him, your thoughts are with Him, your words and prayers are with Him, and you're talking to someone, and simultaneously, unbeknownst to them, you are praying, you're drawing near to the most holy place. Lord, grant help. Oh, that thou wouldst give me help. Give me wisdom in what to say, what not to say, how to be of help here in this conversation. Right? You can be on the plane. You can be in the store, in a hospital. You can be sitting under the preaching of God's Word right this minute and ought to be 
drawing near to the Lord, holding communion with Him, beholding His glory, seeking His blessing. The call to draw near, to continue to do so. The Lord speaks about what we're able to do, the capability that is built upon all that Christ is, the how, how we are able to do it through the new and living way that He has opened and consecrated for us. But He doesn't leave us there. He leaves us with the call to draw near, the call to do so. Oh, that God, by His grace, would so enable us to hear and heed the call. Let us draw near with a true heart. Amen. Let's seek the Lord's face in prayer. Most gracious and most glorious God in heaven, the one who is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. O Lord, we come on the basis of thy word. We can do no other. Indeed, we would do no other. But on the basis of thy revealed word, we come in the name and through the merits and under the blood by way of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, desiring to come through the veil into the most holy place. O Lord, hear our prayers for His sake, through His intercessions. Visit us, O Lord, in mercy. Grant that we would be given eyes to see and hearts to understand and receive these glorious gospel truths. Magnify Thy Son before our eyes and hearts. And give, O Lord, to us that indeed we might here and now and all our days draw near with a true heart in anticipation of that day when for thy people thou wilt say, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Hear our cries, for we ask them in Jesus' name and for his sake.